Hello, and welcome to The Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation Turo-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Faculty Chronicles. Our guest for the day is Brian Chiswell. Brian is the Deputy Chair of the New York School of Career and Applied Sciences Division of the Turner College Biology Department. Dr. Brian Chiswell received a bachelor's in biology from Francis Marion University and a PhD in biochemistry from the University of South Carolina. Following graduate school, he was a postdoc fellow at the Yale University School of Medicine in the Department of Pharmacology, where he spent three years performing discovery stage research in the biotechnology industry. He's now an associate professor at Turo College in Manhattan and has an undergraduate research lab where students study the molecular detail of cell signaling in stomach cancer oncogenesis. Welcome, Brian, to the show today. It took some years to start your uh, teach, to get into that efficiency of teaching, right? The first few years you're trying to build up uh, the teaching style. So do you mind explaining what are some of the challenges that you had when you started teaching? Sure. And it, because of my scientific training, I always thought of presenting and speaking in these 50-minute blocks. Uh, we're trained to talk about our research, whether it's our dissertation defense or when we go on interviews in the biotech industry, you're given a 50-minute time slot to present your research and then a 10-minute question and answer session. So my scientific mind always thought of the science material in that way. The first class that I ever taught was two hours and 40 minutes straight of lecture. And it was a difficult transition to say, how am I ever going to prepare for two hours and 40 minutes talking about a topic that I know something about? I'm not an expert in because it's a very general topic. Uh, how do I do that using the normal presentation style that I would use in a scientific meeting? It's basically impossible to do. So I had to kind of recalibrate my mind to say, it's okay to write things on the whiteboard. It's okay for me to look at my notes to make sure I'm defining something exactly the way it's supposed to be. And it's okay to give the audience a break. Right? It's impossible for the students to focus for two hours and 40 minutes straight on everything I'm saying. Uh, so those, that was one big challenge is um, changing the presentation style. And of course, you're talking to a different audience. Usually with a, a typical science presentation, you're talking to people in your department or people in your field, or even if it's a very broad uh, national meeting with lots of people in attendance, you're still speaking to kind of a select group. Mm -hmm. With a group of freshmen that come into our biology program, you're basically teaching and talking to the general public. 
So it's a different way of bringing up the, the topics. Um, another challenge I faced was feeling comfortable with the with what the students were learning, feeling comfortable with the grades that they were getting at the end of the semester and how that correlated with what they could explain to me about the science. And that kind of leads into my teaching philosophy, which is based on assessment and trying to figure out what I want the students to know and how to ask the right questions so I know they know it. And that that way the assessment correlates better with you know with their learning. Got it. Uh, I agree with you. It is such a you know difficult transition from the PhD days or the postdoc days to the academia, what you rightly said. So now that you have been doing this for you know eight years or so, what are some of the resources that you have been using to improve your teaching skills or your exam writing skills? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I think a lot of us that start out as assistant professors in science, we're relying mostly on our own awareness of what it was like to sit in the classroom ourselves. By the time you get to this level, you've sat in thousands of classes, maybe had hundreds of professors and seen all the different presentation styles. If you start counting the scientific seminars you've been to, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of data there for you to, to think about and how, they, how you wanna present. You've seen what works, uh, you know what you think is the, the best way to present, the best way to manage the, the audience, uh, to really reach the audience. So, so that awareness of what you were, what you were seeing when you were sitting in a classroom, that's helpful, but I don't think that's enough to really create a good strategy. Um, so I reached out for help. I started to attend regional workshops that are put on by the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, the ASBMB. They have regional workshops every year, maybe two a year. And they're not even full day workshops, but it's a chance for faculty that all teach the same subject to get together and talk about what works in their classroom and what doesn't. And that was a great way of seeing the way other people present data, the way they use visualization, for example, the way they might use a three-dimensional structure of a biological molecule, how they first have to teach what that figure is representing and then teach the science behind the, the figure. Um, also, there's quite a few discussions about flipped classrooms and you know different styles of assessment. Um, you know, I agree as you move, move forward with your career and as years go by, you get these kind of experiences where you're working at a national level with other people. But when, when faculty start new, these are some of the experiences they don't get because you know, as a junior faculty, you don't get to work in those kind of boards. So based on your experience from there and thinking back, you know, there, one of the struggle that faculty always have is the expectations they have, right? Based on what they learned and balancing that with the reality. As you said, you're talking to biology one-on-one, -on -one, you know, what is where, so how did you find that balance between the classroom expectations and your expectations? It, that, that just takes time, I think, uh, getting to know the students. And it, it takes a couple semesters to understand um, the best way to deliver the, the lecture and also really analyzing your own assessment, looking at the test questions you're asking, looking at the answers that the students are writing, 
So all my exams include at least a handful of short answer questions where they have to write a sentence or two to answer the question. So in that way, I feel like I'm, I'm downloading information from the student's mind rather than scoring an exam where they can do really well using just word association and, and recall. So I'm getting to look in their mind a little bit as they write down these answers, and I, that helps me steer the, the lecture. Yeah, but it's very difficult when you, when you first start out. You do have a lot of things to balance. Uh, you, you're relearning the material for the course, uh, or maybe learning things that were a little outside of your, your training. Gen nobody majors in general biology, right? Nobody gets a PhD in general biology. Uh, so everybody has to go back and review some of that uh, material. And then you're, you're working on your own delivery. Do you want to poll the classroom every five minutes, every 10 minutes, or do you want to go straight for 20 minutes and then ask them two or three questions at once? There's a lot of things to, to figure out at the beginning. And as you're focused on that presentation and managing the classroom, the first exam comes up in a hurry and you realize that you don't have the time you need to develop 50 test questions that are at you know, a high level, 50 test questions that have been vetted and that you know are assessing what you really want to. So you said something about the exams. You said that you always have a handful of short answers in your exams. Now, there is a tendency among the faculty as well as the students to go towards a multiple choice question. And the one advantage of using the multiple choice, it is graded fast. Estimate has so many responsibilities on them. It becomes a little harder to have the short answer questions where you have to grade. And also, of course, the subjective nature of grading of the short answer questions. So what are some of the ways in which you are finding time to grade your short answer questions and also overcoming the challenge of the subjectiveness of the short answer question grading? Right. That's a, that's a very good question, too. Um, I think I have kind of a, there's a practical approach. So when you're first starting out, again, you, you are a little limited with time. So you might do what I did, where just start to slowly increase the number of short answer questions. This way you're not having to devote two full weeks to writing and vetting these questions. And the, the grading part, so you can throw a Scantron through the machine and get your analytic printout, uh, and you can learn some important things about your multiple choice questions in a hurry. Um, the, the, the back end or the grading part of a multiple choice exam then is quick and convenient. But if you're going to write really good multiple choice questions, the front end time, I think, is more intensive. Uh, if you're really going to write a good question, if it's multiple choice, the, the other choices, the wrong choices, have to be thought through as well. Right? They have to be maybe not misleading because you don't want to trick the students. That's not what the assessment is about. But they have to be competitive with the right answer to really know if the, um, the student isn't just picking an answer because they associate a word in the answer with a, a word in the question. Uh, because that's, word association isn't what we want to test. So with writing short answer assessments, I think you save time up front with writing the test questions because you can write a uh, pretty concise question, you know, describe this process or describe how these two processes are different. And it only takes a few seconds to think of that question. The, the grading part becomes uh, more time intensive. If you have a good rubric, um, then you don't have to really focus on every word in the answer. You know, you skim the answer and you first maybe grade it for its overall quality. 
and then you go back look for certain keywords to see if it's going to fall um, like for, for example with the ASBNB the short answer questions we use a highly proficient proficient and not yet proficient scale um, you spend a lot of time thinking what falls if something falls between those two categories what is the factor that rounds it up to highly proficient or down to proficient for example uh, if you're writing your own rubric for a classroom exam you might score a question out of 10 points and then you've got to figure out in the rubric in the rubric how to round up to say eight points or down to seven uh, but you can get the hang of that uh, after a while and so now I score all my exams in Canvas, even the short answer questions. Canvas quizzes has the option to, to do essay questions. And I create a small rubric, and I also create a comment bank. Because one thing, if, you, if the professor has never really given a short answer or long answer to question in biology, they might not realize that they're going to see the same mistakes quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have this comment bank, and you can copy and paste that in because most of the students are going to need the same feedback. Uh, so it is more time intensive on the grading end, but it saves some time up front. And in the end, I would argue it's about the same amount of time between a multiple choice and a short answer exam. Um, and the short answer exam, I think, typically is going to be a better assessment. The multiple choice questions to write good ones, like you see on the MCAT or you see on the GREs, those are very difficult to do. I agree. Writing a good multiple choice question takes a lot of time and a lot of practice and, um, you know, time for sure. So, um, you talked about using Canvas, you know, to use the, to write the exams and grade it and all those kind of things. So, uh, this is another thing I, I think the uh, new faculty struggle with because as a, though we might be used to using technology as a PhD student as well as a postdoc, but the kind of learning softwares that to be used when you move into the academy world is different. And just also in addition, every college has different learning software, right? Every the LMS is different at different places. So when you think through your last eight years here, the technology use, have you started using more technology, less technology? Is it the same? How has your technology has evolved over these last eight um, years? So even subtracting out the, the pandemic and the technology rush that that brought in, I'm definitely using more technology now. Um, and even, as you mentioned, you can switch institutes and then you have to switch learning management systems. I've been teaching at Toro this whole time, and we switched, you know, internally we switched learning management systems from Blackboard to Canvas. So even if you don't leave an institute, you still might have to relearn an entire new software. Um, I find the learning management software to be pretty user friendly. And the transition from Blackboard to Canvas wasn't that bad. I find myself wanting to use Canvas more often um, things like using the calendar, the discussion board, things that I think the students are going to really find helpful. So it, this is a good example of when it, it's good for the faculty to kind of really put themselves in the students' shoes. And you know, the first time the student logs on to the course in Canvas, what are they going to what are they going to want to see? And then when they're reviewing for the exam, you know, what do they want to see? So we try to create review modules and you know. 
have the syllabus with the, the dates in there so they can see how the course is going to lay out. Um, so I'm definitely trying to use more of the technology within Canvas. Uh, this semester, for us, each course has a Yuja channel. Yuja is our video uh, capture and video, mm -hmm. video editing software. Yeah. Um, so all the courses of mine have the, the videos posted in the channel where the students can see the recordings of the lecture. If it's not a lecture-based course, they'll still see helpful videos that'll get them started with doing the, the assignments. Um, so those are things that I probably would have done even if the, pandem the pandemic didn't hit, uh, but the pandemic definitely catalyzed uh, the, the use of this technology. And I think I, the students look for, I think the students enjoy their devices. You know, they, they don't mind spending a lot of time. Uh, I think they do get worn out a little bit. I was actually talking to someone about this this morning. Um, we use a software called anatomy.tv and we're just wondering, you know, how much of this interactive interactive anatomy software the students want to use after just sitting in a Zoom class you know, for five or six hours. Are they then going to take a half an hour break and then use this software for another three or four hours to study? Um, even though students do like to be on their devices, there's got to be a point where they just get fatigued. Right. So I like to use the software because I know a lot of the students come in looking for things on the learning management system but I don't want there to be too much there where it's, where it's overwhelming. Got it. So, Brian, you seem to be so versed with all this technology that out there have been, you know, saying, you know, you, Joe, or the different base canvas can be used, the anatomy software. How did you get yourself trained on all these things? Is there some kind of resources within Toro that you're using to get yourself trained on these things? Uh, especially any of our audience uh, listening to it would like to have some more idea about some of the softwares. How are you getting yourself trained on all these things? Yeah, so Toro College uh, provides a lot of good training. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be part of the, the training for how to teach an online course. If it's more of a general thing, I fill out the ticket, like the IT support always recommends. I fill out a ticket for basic things and um, those get addressed very quickly. If it's more advanced, I try to reach out to a specific person. So we have been talking a little bit about pandemic or the word pandemic kept coming every now and then in our conversation. So tell us some of the challenges that you had in your teaching you know, after we moved into this remote learning because of the pandemic. What are some of the challenges that you had and what are some of the strategies that you used to overcome those challenges? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And I, I think higher ed learned a lot from March and April. Um, we learned a lot about how far the technology has advanced and how we're kind of running out of excuses not to offer more online and hybrid uh, courses. Uh, but what we learned early in March when we transitioned to remote was that we had no idea what to do for the laboratory sessions. So we had to kind of scramble to come up with ideas for that. Um, what I wanted to do is maintain a couple things about the laboratory. I wanted the students to have an active learning experience as hands-on as it could be. And I wanted them to have the same camaraderie that they have in a lab, where they might be divided up into pairs or teams of three, and they're working at a bench together for, for two or three hours throughout the semester, getting to know each other, building lifelong friendships and, and things like that. 
Um, so we, we found some simulations that have been developed. Uh, the simulations are from Lapster.com, and their marketing uh, phrase is that they have a, a million-dollar lab that you can, you can work in for a few hours. So it's all virtual, but there is hands that you control with your mouse, and you have to move the hands from the pipette uh, to, the, to the Petri dish, from the Petri dish to the incubator, uh -huh. and you, you actually have to manipulate the person that's working in the lab. And there's questions uh, about every two or three minutes. You have to answer questions successfully to move on in this you know, simulation experience. We thought that was the closest thing we could get to reproducing the real lab experience. And when, the way I use Zoom on top of that is I'll send the students into breakout rooms where one person can share the simulation on their screen and the other two can help guide the hands, the other two can help uh, get the, the person doing the simulation through the questions. Uh, so in a way that they're still, they'll still, they are still working together and building a bond that way. Uh, uh, what are some of the feedback that you have been receiving from students on this particular simulation? Other than the technical difficulties that they have, because there's always issues where it doesn't work with a Chromebook or it doesn't work with a certain browser. Um, we work through most of those issues, but other than that, uh, the feedback has been very good. Um, the faculty has given good feedback. Uh, they're surprised. In general, they're very surprised at how well the simulation is done. We also had issues with, you know, how do we take the, the presence that we have in the classroom and get that into a Zoom meeting. Um, we all had to learn how to use Zoom, how to use uh, the mute buttons, how to use the breakout rooms, how to use the chat. Uh, those are the challenges we faced, and I think we're, we're still trying to get better at that. And I think Zoom is still upgrading and mm -hmm. um, putting more functionality in there for faculty. Yep. Like now okay. you can save the whiteboard and, and things like that. I don't know if all those little options were available back in, in March and April. That's it was so quite true. a challenge. The, the challenge was and still is trying to engage the students in the same way uh, at the same level that you could in the classroom. So, you know, you are a very active faculty. You have administrative responsibilities. You are also an active researcher. With all these things coming to you, how do you achieve a work-life balance? You know, I think that's something that comes up a lot these days, especially in the world of academia. And, you know, for the new faculty, it can be very overwhelming at times, you know, how to balance all these things and to have a life, actually. So any, any thoughts about achieving work-life balance or what, what is your strategy? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question because wellness, mental wellness, physical wellness, spiritual wellness, those, these are all such important topics right now. I think the, the secret to work-life work balance is getting to know yourself, being honest with yourself, um, and knowing what your balance is. You know, for me, I need a quite a bit of uh, non-science, non-technology conversations. Uh, I need to talk about sports and politics and movies and, you know, music and, and those things. Um, I also need to get outside uh, and I need exercise. Um, eating well helps me too. So there's a little bit of awareness, like trying to figure out exactly what it is about yourself that makes you feel healthy and happy. And then there's a discipline that you need to stick to. 
um, you need to make sure you make time to exercise, time to prepare a healthy meal, time for yourself. Uh, if you need time alone, try to figure out how to get at that, that time. Uh, and I think, you know, one thing I read about, like I follow, I think Dr. Hemstra is her name from Emory University. She's a chemistry professor down there. Uh, she posts a lot on Twitter about, about wellness. You know, one thing she preaches on there is be patient with yourself. You, know, you need some discipline to kind of make sure that you're keeping yourself well-rounded and healthy, but also don't feel guilty and don't feel worse if you don't achieve the things you were hoping for when you woke up that morning or when you went to sleep the night before. Um, this is a, a time where we all might have days that we, we just want to forget. Um, <laughs> so if you get off your diet or you've, if you're mean to someone that day, I mean, don't be so hard on yourself. Like come back the next day, ready to, to be disciplined again, ready to, to be the best person you can be and have a short memory about the, the day before. I think those things really help. We, we've kind of locked into this pace of life that we all had. We had these timelines, these deadlines that we gave ourselves for when we wanted to achieve certain things. Um, what I try to do now is kind of have a, a sliding timeline. Uh, if I have a goal of, that I want to achieve, let's say on the research side of things, um, I'll say, okay, this would normally take me two months to do in a lab. Now I'll give myself six months. But then as I get within three months of that six month deadline, I look at the deadline again and say, is this still realistic? And I'll allow, allow myself to slide that deadline around. Because we're getting things that have to be prioritized thrown at us every day now. Um, like all of a sudden we have to learn this new technology, we have to learn Zoom, we have to um, learn Yuja, and that pushes everything else back. So I think we have to be able to kind of let go of these preconceived deadlines and be a little more flexible. That, that sounds sense. like a good mantra, to be flexible and not to feel guilty about it. You know, I, I think that, that really sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for being with us today and giving, uh, talking to us about your teaching experiences, um, your initiatives with Kettle in starting a, a new faculty orientation, some of the struggles the new faculty have, how Tura College is trying to help them um, in, in having the community so that it's a place for them to go to, um, and also talking about some of the uh, issues during pandemic and the work-life balance. Uh, we are so happy to have you with us today. Um, and this is Elizabeth Uni from the Toro College of Pharmacy signing off from the Faculty Chronicles. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on the Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.